Last week was Thanksgiving. Um, I hope all of you had a good plate or two of a Thanksgiving meal. If you're like me, you have certain things that you you like most on your Thanksgiving plate, the stuffing, the gravy, turkey, ham, whatever it is. You might leave those things for the last, right? Because you want to savor them. Well, I think here also in Joshua, we have kind of the last bit of this section in Joshua dealing with the tribal allotments. And I think God has really left the the best for last. This tribe of Levi and their allotment really has a profound lesson to teach us. And it's a sweet lesson. In this text, there are three main sections. First, the Levites ask for their cities and pasture lands in verses 1 to 3. We see that they come to the heads of the fathers' houses of the Levites. They come to Eliezer the priest and Joshua the son of Nun at Shiloh. And they, they ask for things that the Lord had commanded to give to this tribe of Levi. It says in verse 2, they said to them at Shiloh in the land of Canaan, the Lord commanded through Moses that we be given cities to dwell in along with their pasture lands for our livestock. This is something God had commanded beforehand that the Levites should be given cities and pasture lands. And in verse 3 it says, so by command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. That's what this whole chapter is about. It's this gift to the Levites from the rest of the tribes of cities and pasture lands. In verses 4 to 8, it lists the different clans within the tribe of Levi and how they got cities from different tribes in Israel. So just to highlight one in verse 4, it says, The lot came out for the clans of the Kohathites. So those Levites who were descendants of Aaron the priest received by lot from the tribes of Judah, Simeon, and Benjamin, 13 cities. There were three sons of Levi, who was himself a son of Jacob, and so he's one of the tribes, the 12 tribes of Israel. There were three sons of Levi, the Kohath, Gershon, and Merari. You see those names Verse 4, you see the Kohathites. Verse 6, you see the Gershonites. Verse 7, you see the Merarites. These were the different clans within the tribe of Levi. And you see that they were spread throughout the territories of Israel, being given different cities within different tribes. Those sons of Aaron from the clans of the Kohathites were specifically given Judah, Simeon, and Benjaminite cities because that was closest to Jerusalem where the place of worship eventually would be. So that's verses 4 to 8. There's these different clans that receive cities in different tribes. Then in verses 9 to 40, we have a list of all the cities. And no, we're we're not going to read all of this. We're not going to go in depth into all these cities just in case you're worried because it'd be far too much to look at. But verses 41 to 42 then summarize the cities that were given. 
says the cities of the Levites in the midst of the possession of the people of Israel were in all 48 cities with their pasture lands. These cities each had its pasture lands around it. So it was with all these cities. And so they were given in all these 48 cities. Out of the rest of the inheritance of the different tribes of Israel. But I want to look at this text and its message under three headings. There are really three main things we can glean from the Levites and their inheritance. So number one is the Levites' position. Number two is the Levites' provision. And number three is the Levites' portion. First of all, here the Levites' position. As I already said, Levi was one of the sons of Jacob and so one of the tribes of Israel. But he was not a normal tribe. He was set apart in some way as a holy tribe, as the tribe from which priests and then what we call Levites would be taken. This really happened back in Exodus chapter 32, verse 26. After the people worshipped the golden calf, Levi was set apart from the rest of the tribes because it was the Levites who rallied to Moses and Aaron who were on the Lord's side. And so they were given this priesthood. The sons of Aaron had already been set apart for the priesthood before that. We know it's specifically those sons of Aaron who was a son of Kohath, son of Levi, that would specifically be the priests. But there were these other Levites. The rest of the tribe was also to serve in the tabernacle and the sanctuary. We see in the early history of Israel, they would set up the tabernacle and take it down. They would uh, sort of take care of all the, the vessels of the sanctuary. And we also see in Deuteronomy 33, verse 10, you can turn there for a moment, this is part of Moses' blessing on the tribes. And he says specifically of Levi, verse 10, They shall teach Jacob your rules and Israel your law. They shall put incense before you and whole burnt offerings on your altar. So we see that we're involved in the offerings and sacrifices, the incense of the tabernacle and temple. And they were, were also to teach the rest of Israel God's rules, his laws. And so they were these servants of worship. And they were these teachers in Israel. Later on in Israel's history, we learn that many of the Levites became sort of like worship leaders at the temple. Second Chronicles 8 verse 14 would tell us that. And from among the Levites, specifically the sons of Aaron, were the priests. The priests had even more serious role within the sanctuary, offering sacrifices on behalf of the people. But these men were scattered throughout Israel in these different cities, so that the people would be taught the law, and this worship would be kept up in Israel. Matthew Henry says, Thus God set up a candle in every room of his house to give light to all his family. The Levites were this 
holy tribe spread out in Israel to be a blessing to them, to teach the law, to engage constantly in the service of worship, sacrifice, and teaching. So they had this unique position, this privileged position to be unlike the rest of the tribes in a way, constantly engaged in the service of God. This was a blessed occupation. Psalm chapter 27 and verse 4, I think, captures the heart of the Levite, though this was written by King David. I think David would have been a Levite if he had a choice. Psalm 27 verse 4, he says, One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple. That was essentially the role of a Levite or a priest, to be in the house of God, to, to stare at the beauty of God, to inquire in his temple and teach his rules, to be constantly engaged in his service. And so Levi was a, a distinct tribe within Israel. And they were an important tribe because the people needed to maintain the sacrificial system, to maintain, really, as it were, their fellowship with this holy God. It's the reason this whole Levitical priesthood was installed in the first place, is because this was a sinful people, Israel, but a holy God was dwelling with them. And so they needed to continually offer sacrifices for atonement. And these priests and Levites were engaged in that service. So they needed this whole tribe to be engaged in that full time. But as we know from scripture, we don't have Levites anymore, do we? Levites are not needed anymore. They're part of that Old Testament, that Old Covenant era. We have moved on from the Old Covenant to a better covenant with a better priesthood. It's like Ford has moved on from making the Model T to the F-150. There's, there's a better covenant now. There's been a change of priesthood and law. Hebrews 7 specifically lays out many of the contrasts between the Levitical priesthood and now the the final fulfilled priesthood of Christ, who is himself holy and innocent and eternal. And he's offered this sacrifice once for all so that we can draw near to God through him. He put an end to that whole Levitical system by one perfect sacrifice. And we now as believers in Christ enter into the true sanctuary, God's very presence through his body and blood, we draw near through him. And we only need one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus, as 1 Timothy 2.5 says. This is something Martin Luther rediscovered in the Reformation, what we call the priesthood of all believers. We do not need any pope. We don't need any priest. We don't need any saint or Mary between us and God himself, we have Jesus Christ, our great high priest. And we become, as priests, 
through Jesus Christ. That is, we draw near to God in his presence. We are all servants in his temple, the church. We draw near to pray. We offer worship, offer spiritual sacrifices, our whole lives to God. We proclaim God's word to the world. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9 reminds us of this truth. 1 Peter 2, verse 9 says, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is the priesthood of all believers. And hence, no Levites or priests are needed anymore. We're all Levites in one sense. We all ought to have the heart of a Levite to devote ourselves to the service of God. We have a privileged position being raised to the very heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And so we draw near to God because of what Christ has done for us on the cross. Yet, as we think about the Levites and how they might apply to us and how this chapter can bring application to us, we still have to recognize that there is something like the order of the Levites that lives on even in the New Covenant era. There's still a special order of men who offer their lives totally to the service of God. The Levites were sometimes called ministers. And we have ministers today, don't we? Pastors, elders, overseers in the church. Whatever New Testament term you want to use, there are these ministers. And in a unique way, the priests and Levites resembled that, resemble what we have now as pastors. Men who are employed full-time to engage in the service of God. Teachers who are spread out among God's people, just like the Levites were spread out in the tribes. We have pastors spread out in the world to lead in worship, to teach the word of God, to assist people in offering worship and praise, sacrifices of thanksgiving. This is a privileged position to engage more directly and fully in God's service. Now we have to avoid the error of the Catholics, exalting priests to this position where they're different than other Christians. Pastors are not a different class of Christian. But we also have to avoid the error of other denominations that knowing the doctrine of the priesthood of all believers have done away with the office of full-time pastor in every way. You see churches where men will just, all of them will be elders in the church and preach the word. Not that the Lord can't bless that kind of church, but I think it's an error. Since the New Testament times, full-time pastors have existed in the church. God has given what he calls shepherd teachers to his people to equip them for their spiritual service. 
Flip quickly to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 to 12. It says here, And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherd teachers, or shepherds and teachers, to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ. We all as priests in the temple of God, we engage in this service, building up the body of Christ. But there are men set apart to equip the saints for that work of ministry. And so as we think through the the Levites, we all are Levites in a sense. If you're a believer, you're a Levite. You're devoted to God. You draw near to him. You're a priest. And yet, there is something about the Levites that applies specifically to pastors today. This leads us to our next point. The second point here is the Levites' provision. In Joshua 21, verse 3, it says, So by a command of the Lord, the people of Israel gave to the Levites the following cities and pasture lands out of their inheritance. The people of Israel willingly gave out of what they owned, what God had given to them, to these Levites. This is part of what we call the law of tithes in the Old Testament. A tithe means a tenth. There was always a first portion of everything the Israelites had that was given to three areas. Number one is the use of the Levites. Second, the use of the temple and the great feasts. And thirdly, the use of the poor. Israel was meant to be ordered in such a way that all the tribes contributed so that the service of the sanctuary could continue with these Levites set apart for that service and so that also the needy could be provided for. And so we see the Levites were given portions of meat from the sacrifices, first fruits of grain, wine, oil, wool, And here they were given a place within other tribes' cities to live in. And they were given pasture lands outside the city for their sheep and livestock. Deuteronomy 18, 3-4 specifies some of those other things that were given to the Levites. Since they were engaged in a unique and full-time service, they needed to be provided for from the collective generosity of the rest of Israel. They had no land of their own. They were living among the other tribes. Now this provision, I do think, points us to something important about today's church. The church is, in a sense, a charity. It is, well, this church at least, is registered legally as a charity. We do works of charity. We, we gather our resources for the kingdom of God. We are to give out of what God gives to us, not being selfish in our use of resources and simply using that for our own gain, our own self-aggrandizement, our own kingdom, but rather to give to the kingdom of God, to the work of the church, and to the needs of the poor. You see in Galatians 6.10, the principle that we're to do good to all people, especially those of the household of faith. 
In Luke chapter 12, Jesus can say some striking things about our duty to give to the poor. He says in Luke 12, 32, Fear not, little flock, for it is your father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Verse 33 there is striking. Sell your possessions. Give to the needy. I saw that a few months ago and it struck me and I ran up to Janelle and I said, what do we have to sell that we could give the proceeds to the needy? We need to think in those terms more often that we give up what we could have for the sake of others. We see this happening in the early church in Acts 6 where they were giving out contributions to the widows and they had to institute this other office of deacon to organize that giving. We see it in Acts chapter 11 where the Antioch church sends Paul and Barnabas with financial relief to the church in Jerusalem because there had been a famine. We see this in 2 Corinthians 8 to 9 where Paul is organizing from all the Gentile churches a a great collection for the church in Jerusalem because they were still poor. Christ's generosity towards us in the gospel leads us to become generous givers when we see those who are in need. And so we're commanded, like Israel, to give to the poor, to the needy, but also like they gave to the Levites, to give and support the work of full-time ministers. Missionaries and pastors, those engaged in the labor of preaching and teaching, church planting and building, are by God's design and command supported by the rest of the church body. This is a principle we see in the New Testament as well. If you flip quickly to Matthew chapter 10, we're going to look at a number of different scriptures this morning. Matthew 10, verses 8 and 9, back up to verse 7. Jesus is sending his disciples out and he says, And proclaim as you go, saying, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse lepers, cast out demons. You received without paying, give without pay. Acquire no gold or silver or copper for your belts, no bag for your journey, or two tunics or sandals or a staff. For the laborer deserves his food. See, Jesus was sending them out with no money of their own. No no place of their own to stay in. He was sending them from town to town. They were to go about preaching the gospel, healing people, casting out demons. And so they were to trust God as they went and preach freely and stop in Houses, if there was someone worthy there, they would stay there. God would provide for them. Because, as he says in verse 10, the laborer deserves his food. That was like the the Levites in the Old Testament. They had to trust God. That God would provide for them as they went into this full-time service. 
In 1 Corinthians 9, Paul lays out even more of this principle. 1 Corinthians 9. Paul explains that he had the right to be supported in his missionary work. It, it was his due payment. And he gives a bunch of illustrations to make this point. He says, for instance, in uh, verse 7, it says, Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? So soldiers don't go out by their, by their own money, you know, working as they go, trying to serve in the army as well as make money along the way. They're sent out by their country and they're fully supported so they can do that work. This is the principle Paul is laying out and he uses the Old Testament as well. In verse 8 and 9, do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. He goes on, he says, if we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, he'll go on to say, Paul did not make use of this right. In this instance, he actually refused to take payment from the Corinthians, who actually wanted to pay them. But it was because they had a distorted view of that payment, which I won't get into. But Paul actually refuses to exercise this right of his to be paid in the preaching of the gospel. But in verse 13, he mentions specifically the priests and Levites. He says, do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings in the same way the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. And there he's paraphrasing Matthew 10 there that the laborer deserves his wages as they went out preaching the gospel. They were to get their living by the gospel. Paul mentions this principle elsewhere in other letters. Flip to 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 to 18. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17 to 18. It says, Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. Again, some of those same phrases he's used elsewhere. And in verse 17, where it says double honor, the word honor actually means an honorarium. That is, honor conferred through compensation. So we see this principle throughout scripture. Galatians 6.6 6 as well, he says, but the one who is taught share all good things with the one who teaches. And so this is a principle we see in the New Testament church, not just the old covenant people of Israel, just as they supported the Levites. 
So the church today is to support full-time ministers so that the work of the gospel can continue, so that the kingdom of God is not hindered. Now, our church does not need to have this explained to it. That's, this is not why I'm going on so long about this. But I think this is a principle that other churches especially need to be reminded of. There are many churches today where pastors are not paid for their work, where pastors are bivocational. As one elder told me at a time, he was a fellow elder of a pastor in a, in a church where the pastor was bivocational. He told me, when a minister is trying to work two jobs, to be a pastor and he's working another full-time job, one of three things is going to suffer. His ministry, his family, or his work. Under normal circumstances, no man can do all three of those things. He's trying to do pastoral duties in his free time after work. Well, he's probably neglecting his family. Do we want men to be in that situation? No, we don't. And again, our church doesn't need to be reminded of this. But my hope is that perhaps our church could be in such a position to help others who are in need, that we could support more missionaries, more other churches who are genuinely struggling. There are churches that are, that are poor or they're just getting started or they have too few people. If we can help out like Paul's Jerusalem collection, then that's a work we should engage in. But other churches also need this teaching of this principle that the laborer deserves his wages. This helps us to prioritize the kingdom of God over our wants, knowing we're building up treasure in heaven, that this life is not about earthly wealth, increasing in riches, building bigger barns. It's about undivided devotion to Christ. It's about the kingdom of God and the spread of the gospel. It's about the work of the church. The work of the church is, is, is supreme in this age. It is God's instrument he is using for his mission on the earth. And so we have to take even these practical duties seriously. So the Levites provide something of an illustration of us, of how the people provided for these full-time ministers. But now there's a more profound point from this passage that I want to mention. And it's actually not explicitly mentioned in this text, in Joshua 21. But it's actually spread out throughout Joshua before this passage. And it's implied in this passage. The Levites did not have a portion of the land as their inheritance. But they did have a portion. They did have an inheritance. Look with me at Joshua chapter 13, verse 14. Joshua 13, 14. It says, To the tribe of Levi alone, Moses gave no inheritance. The offerings by fire to the Lord God of Israel are their inheritance, as he said to them. Then flip over to chapter 18, verse 7. 
It says, the Levites have no portion among you, for the priesthood of the Lord is their heritage. And then again to chapter 13, verse 33. This sums it all up. It says, but to the tribe of Levi, Moses gave no inheritance. The Lord God of Israel is their inheritance, just as he said to them. And if you'll flip back for just one moment as well to Numbers chapter 18 and verse 20. Numbers 18, 20. It says, and the Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, neither shall you have any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance among the people of Israel. What we see is that the Levites did have a portion, didn't they? It was a different portion. It was a piece from a different kind of pie than the rest of Israel received from. They did not have a tribal territory. They were scattered in Israel. They had no permanent home on the earth. But they did have God himself as their portion. They were more rich than the other tribes. They had the, the worship of God, the offerings by fire. That was their portion. They had the priesthood. Their vocation as servants of God was their reward, their pleasant lot. And ultimately, God himself, like pilgrims in Israel, they had no lasting place on earth. And so God himself was known more fully to them to be their inheritance, to be their portion and cup. And this is something true of all true believers, isn't it? We have God as our portion, as our inheritance. All true believers are Levites at heart to worship God, to work for God, and most of all, just to have God is our choicest portion in life and in eternity. Levi, as Tozer writes, was more blessed than the other tribes. He says, God said to the Levites, I am thy part and thine inheritance, and by those words made him richer than all his brethren, richer than all the kings and princes who have ever lived in the world. And there is a spiritual principle here, still valid for every priest of the Most High God. The man who has God for his treasure has all things in one. Whatever he may lose, he has actually lost nothing, for he now has it all in one, and he has it purely, legitimately, and forever. If we have God, we have everything. More than all lands, all riches on the earth, we have the very creator God, the God of infinite love and grace. He is our inheritance. This heart of the Levite is expressed Elsewhere, I want to turn to a couple of psalms briefly. Psalm 16. David expresses this heart of the Levite, that he delighted in God as his portion. Psalm 16, verses 5 and 6, he says, The Lord is my chosen portion 
and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. David chose the Lord as his portion. You could put this whole world before David on, on one side and God himself on the other. And David is going to choose God every time. And fortunately for him, the lines fell in pleasant places. God himself in his sovereignty gave himself to David. He had a beautiful inheritance. Why was this such a beautiful and chosen portion? Well, look at Psalm 16, verse 11. All life, true joy, and eternal pleasures flow from God. He says, you make known to me the path of life. In your presence, there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. He's the God of all joy, peace, and life. To know him, to walk with him is more pleasurable than all the pleasures of sin this world can give. Flip with me also to Psalm 73, which Nathan read most of for us. Psalm 73. This psalm begins with Asaph getting bitter about the wicked in the world who are increasing in wealth while the godly are often afflicted and poor. And this terrible thought comes into his mind essentially, is it worth it to serve God? Is it worth it? I have done all of this in vain. Verse 13, all in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. If the, the wicked, if the ungodly, those who do not love God or know God, have all of this in life, is it even worth it? To serve God. But then as he goes on. He enters into the temple. It says in verse 17. He went into the sanctuary of God. And then he discerned therein. Verse 18. Truly you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. God does allow the wicked to be exalted in this world. And, and to have worldly treasures. But he only does this to tear them down in judgment. And so he says, reflecting again about God himself and what he has in God. In verse 23 and following. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there's nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart. And my portion forever. For behold those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge. That I may tell of all your works. Asaph was dealing with some stinking thinking you could call it. In the first part of this song. But he goes into the temple and his perspective is changed. It's reoriented. He remembers the precious treasure that he has in God himself. Look at verse 25 more specifically for a moment. 
The Christian does not desire anything else in heaven but God. Have you thought of this? Whom have I in heaven but you? The Muslims look forward to 70 partners in their heaven. The Mormons look forward to becoming gods of their own planet in the afterlife. The confused Christian may look forward to mostly mansions and streets of gold in glory. But the true believer knows heaven is heaven because God is there. That's what makes it paradise, is that this God of all life and pleasure and joy is there. And we see him more manifestly than we do on this earth. John Piper puts it this way, people who would be happy in heaven if Christ were not there will not be there. The gospel is not a way to get people to heaven. It is a way to get people to God. God is our treasure even in heaven above. Secondly, look, the Christian does not desire anything on earth more than God. There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. Asaph says, the true Christian has Christ sitting on the throne of his heart. He wants God more than anything on this earth, more than riches or pleasure or friends or family or lands or houses or entertainment or food. None of these even compare to the most high God. He is more desirable than anything and everything combined on this earthly plane. As one hymn writer said, all earth's flowing pleasures were a wintry sea. Heaven itself without thee, dark as night would be. Life is death if severed from thy throbbing heart. Death with life abundant at thy touch would start. As we'll sing in a little while in the hymn, Be Thou My Vision. It says, riches I heed not, nor man's empty praise, thou mine inheritance, now and always, thou and thou only, first in my heart, high King of heaven, my treasure thou art. All true believers have God as their treasure. We've chosen him as our portion. We have found the kingdom of God like treasure hidden in a field. And we've gone in our joy and sold everything else to buy that field. We found Christ like a pearl of great value and given everything up to get that pearl. We count the cost of following Jesus, but we deny ourselves. We take up our cross and we follow after him, knowing that he is of greater value than anything else in heaven or on earth. Like Moses, who had a choice in Egypt, on the one side was a royal status as one brought up in Pharaoh's house, all the pleasures of sin that went along with that status, all the treasures of Egypt. And on the other side of the scale was Christ, together with suffering and reproach, mistreatment with the people of God, but the reward of knowing God and having him for eternity. Oh, that side of the scale far outweighed the other side and Moses made his choice the true Christian is like that he's seen God's glory in Christ he's been captured by God's love at the cross 
We've seen ourselves as weak, ungodly sinners before a holy, holy, majestic, righteous, awesome, powerful God. And we've seen that this same God has come down to earth in the flesh to redeem us by his own being cursed and put to death on the cross. And he's risen from the grave and all of our sins are paid for. And we say, amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, shouldst die for me? This love melts us. We see the greatness of this God who is holy, 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 but who is also love itself. And the choice for us is obvious. Do we want this world with its fleeting pleasures? Do we, we, do we want to just keep living for ourselves? Bigger barns, bigger lands, more of our own kingdom. No, we'll give that up for the sake of the kingdom of God because we see the eternal joy and pleasure that is in him. When God reveals himself to us by his sovereign grace and changes our heart's desires, he makes following him irresistible. He's like this magnet drawing us toward himself. Friends, this is the end goal of salvation. This is the goal of the gospel. The goal of the gospel is not simply the forgiveness of our sins or to escape from hell. It's to get to God. Really, salvation is all about God being glorified in getting a people for himself and giving himself to a people that we would know God, that we would be brought to God. What was lost most tragically in the fall was our fellowship with God. But this is what is restored most wonderfully in Jesus Christ. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. God himself is the greatest blessing we receive in the gospel. But friends, maybe you're here this morning and you're struggling with disordered desires. All true Christians still struggle with earthly desires. And all unbelievers are walking continually in earthly desires. But these are disordered desires. When we want anything more than God, other than God, when we worship other things, when we give them all of our time and energy and thought, it's a wrong evaluation. It's a bad appraisal. It's twisted thinking, disordered desires, thirsty. We forsake the fountain of living water and we go perusing broken cisterns that really can hold no water at all. Do you know the reason why you can't find lasting satisfaction in watching the latest TV show or having some junk food or drinking alcohol having lots of possessions, good hobbies, lots of intimacy, having, having your children. Do you know why you can't find lasting satisfaction in anything on earth? <clears throat> it's because you were made to be satisfied in only one thing, one person, God himself. You were made by him and for him. 
Friends, we are happiest when we are most fully enjoying Christ as our Savior and Lord, worshiping Him and working for Him alone. This this was the Levite's portion, to have God, to worship Him, to work for Him. This is where we find the most pleasure, satisfaction, true happiness and joy. So what is it that you're desiring other than Christ right now? Oh, that you would give it up. Just turn back to Jesus Christ. Just look full in his wonderful face and these things will grow strangely dim. Identify your idols and hold them under Christ's feet until they are fully crushed and you are left with him alone to worship him and serve him. Go especially, friend, back to the cross to see again that amazing love. And this will compel you to serve and worship him alone. As the hymn says, when I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and pour contempt on all my pride. Forbid it, Lord, that I should boast save in the death of Christ my God. All the vain things that charm me most, I sacrifice them through his blood. See from his head, his hands, his feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small. Love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. We must return to the truth that God is our inheritance. Believers, you have him already. The Holy Spirit dwelling within you as the down payment of his presence that you will enjoy more fully for all eternity. But as we await that full inheritance, it is our duty to go back to God, to be a Levite at heart, cherishing God as our portion, worshiping him and working for him alone. Let's pray. God, we pray truly that you would increase our longing for you, increase our satisfaction in you, Lord, as we return to you, as we confess our sins, as we place our idols before you to be crushed. God, we pray that you would show us just how satisfying it is to have you as our only and highest treasure in life and in eternity. We thank you, Lord, for the gospel. Thank you for Christ who wins for us such a beautiful inheritance. Indeed, the lines have fallen for us in pleasant places. You are our chosen portion and our cup. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.